Our approach uh, to meditation here, <clears throat> and it's certainly not exclusively here, is meant to be uh, more of a, a way of life than uh, a mere collection of techniques and forms. Even though techniques and forms are very important, you can even say they're vital, uh, to help us learn. And what I've been talking about for many weeks, as many of you know, how many people have been to at least two or three of the previous? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> the series has been called Self-Knowing, A Quiet Passion. Um, and of late, the last, I don't know how many, I've been emphasizing an aspect of that, which is learning how to live. That is, um, in a sense, you could say the quiet passion of this form of meditation is about learning and learning how to live. A Dharma talk uh, is a little different than attending a, a lecture. So that uh, if life and practice are meant more and more to become interchangeable till finally there's no separation, then right now what's important for you is to practice listening. Uh, that means not so much uh, remembering everything that's being said. Uh, if you watch your mind, you'll see that it will agree, it will disagree. Uh, that isn't as important as uh, staying attentive and getting to know how your mind does listening. That's learning. In fact, you learn how to listen by, as far as I can tell, not by setting up an ideal of being the really sincere listener, uh, but uh, by seeing how you really don't listen how the mind is so busy chattering away uh, stuff that went on during the day, plans for tomorrow, disagreements, agreements, uh, connecting that with what you learned from Zen or the Tibetans, or um, rehearsing what you would say, what kind of question you have to ask when this is all, the talk part is over. And in the midst of that welter of uh, that storm of words, uh, I'm going to be droning on, okay? <laughs> and so out of compassion for me, try to pay attention. <laughs> but really, it's, it's part of learning. Now, giving a talk is also practice, so it's not just for you. And uh, there are different ways to give talks, and I'll let you in on how I do it, because it's not, not that it's the way, but it, it's how I do it, and I've been learning how to do this for many, many years. It has its strengths and weaknesses. Tonight I'm quite aware of its weakness, but uh, weaknesses, and you'll see why in a moment. Um, <clears throat> two teachers who influenced me very much about giving Dharma talks. The main one was a uh, Korean Zen master named Sung San. And he was, uh, helped me, he wanted me to teach. And little by little he was training me to teach. And uh, at a certain point, he had me give talks. And being an ex-college professor, I thought I would just write out a nice, logical, clear talk. He went, no, no, that's not the way you should do it. And he said, uh, giving a Dharma talk is like being a jazz musician. Get your theme, get that clear, and then just blow. Okay? <laughs> okay. So uh, sometimes the theme is very clear. And uh, if it is, then the blowing comes easily. Sometimes there's no theme or blowing that comes easily, and what I'm watching is anxiety 
you know, about like, I have nothing to say tonight. You know, like, uh, what more can I say about self-knowing and learning? It's been what, I don't know, many, many talks. Um, so let's see what happens. Uh, what I thought I'd do is, I know I want to talk about learning, but then there's so many different ways to enter. And what I wanted to do is to approach something I haven't given it any thought in, at all this way for a long time, maybe never. Uh, sometimes uh, the strength of this is that it's spontaneous. Now, Ajahn Chah was a second teacher, a Thai forest master, and he would say, if you're not ready to give talks from the heart, you're not ready to give Dharma talks. Uh, that's a little strict and severe because we know there's some uh, people who give wonderful Dharma talks and have notes and all that. So I wouldn't completely go along with that. Uh, the advantage of having notes is at least, let's say if you're talking on the Four Noble Truths, you get all four out. I've given talks on the Four Noble Truths, and then I've gone home and I said, oh, there are only three that I talked about. <laughs> <laughs> the Three Noble Truths, okay. Uh, maybe we can limp our way to enlightenment that way. Um, the advantage is spontaneity. The disadvantage is sometimes you leave out the good stuff. Uh, the, another disadvantage is you, start, you really have nothing to say. And what I've learned, and this is learning, I've learned to have faith in to just sit and watch if there is anxiety or, my goodness, there's so many ways in which I could approach this. Which one? Um, somehow it settles and something typically comes on. I taught with a I don't have enough courage to do what he did. A man named Vimelo Kulbarts, who was, uh, he was a, a German uh, national who was a Buddhist monk in Burma for oh, 25 years. And we, we taught together in the early days at IMS while he was still a monk. And uh, he was trained the same way. And one night, he gets up to give the Dharma talk, stops, it goes, there's a long, long silence. It goes on and on. People are starting to get anxious and fidgety. He says, Somehow, it doesn't come tonight. We do walking meditation. <laughs> okay, I, I couldn't get away with that. <laughs> also, if you're a monk, you can get away with a lot of things that a layperson can. So I have to make up some stuff. Um, what I want to talk about is learning how to learn. And even as I, as I begin, I've gotten some feedback from uh, friends and stu old students who have saying, you know, I would refer to uh, what Dharma is as a school. It's a kind of school, but CIMC is a kind of school. Uh, and, and I talk about learning and say people uh, become uptight when they hear that. First of all, those who finish school are just so relieved to be done with the school uh, that they don't, the word school and learn means degree granting something, achievement, competition, striving, good job, no job, you know, and even learning is tied to books and grades and comparisons and all that, yet they're perfectly beautiful terms. They're ancient words that have uh, a school is a, a beautiful thing and so is learning a beautiful thing. So uh, uh, I don't know, I suppose I could find synonym for it, but uh, I'd rather disinfect the words so that uh, you see how, how it's meant. Um, it also, uh, so, so those people who have done with school don't like it. And if those of you who are still in school, you really don't want it. You don't want more of the same. You didn't come here. You're exhausted from a day of whatever it is you've been doing. And you don't want to hear someone else 
put you in another degree-granting program, which this isn't, unless you turn it into one. In other words, if you have set, you've read some of it, and there are four stages, and then you get enlightened, and which stage am I at? How do you get to the, uh, uh, so you've already done BA, MA, PhD, assistant professor, associate professor, full professor, professor with a chair, statue of you in the yard somewhere. <laughs> and you see, you're still not happy. So you come running over here, well, maybe they have it. And so now here's a new, a new grid for you to run. Please, don't do that. Uh, it has nothing to, that's counterproductive. So I've had people who are with very serious faces. Uh, this was a gentleman from Israel at a retreat at IMS we just had. Uh, and we went around, well, he had never, he came to a, a, you know, a week-long retreat. Uh, we went around, well, why did you come? And he said, well, I've never meditated before, but I, I really, I really want to learn how to relax. I'm very stressed <laughs> out. And he literally went, made fists. And I said, look, I'm not the Palestinians, you know. It's, it's okay. First of all, you can't get relaxed by trying to get relaxed. Can you hear that that's more of the same? And uh, by the end of the retreat, he, he, he was beginning to understand that. Um, to me, the Buddhist teaching is very much about learning. And if I had to get a theme in, with Sansanim's uh, suggestion and then just blow, uh, what came to me while we were sitting is uh, something I hadn't thought of in many, many years. By the way, sometimes when you say things, people who have come and heard a lot of talks will say, it's a kind of insult, but you know, if you teach, you have to let it go. They'll say, uh, you know, Larry, I've, uh, you said something different tonight. Uh, <laughs> uh, something new I haven't heard you say before. And sometimes I say, yeah, I haven't heard myself say it before either. You know, it just comes out of there. Um, the quote, a quote, so I have my theme to blow, and now we'll see what happens with it. Some years ago, I collect little so-called trivial little articles from newspapers. I find there's Dharma everywhere, but certainly you find them a lot in, in all, anywhere. The worst film has Dharma in it. Movies, by the way, plays, great art, a lot of it is, they're wonderful manuals on how to create suffering. Otherwise, it wouldn't be that interesting. I mean, most of them, are, if you want to learn how to make, as if we need lessons. But anyway, if you want to, here's, here's what, kill everyone in sight, uh, you know, etc. At some point, of course, you get killed, you know. Uh, insult every, uh, so uh, if you look at it and you see this is exactly how not to live, they're beautiful portrayals. And then uh, every now and then there's a film that is, that has some wisdom in it. But they're not too many, are there? No. No, yeah. Um, the quote, the there was a research study done and of what is the most um, frequently cited quote or line from Hollywood movies. They surveyed, I don't know, an enormous number of films. And what won, what first place was, let's get out of here. <laughs> and I realized, exactly, that's what Dharma is about. You know, uh, we've been trained, oh, here comes suffering, let's get out of here. Uh, here, in other words, we want to get away from what we don't like, and we want to, the good stuff to come. I, how was your sitting? How was your practice? Oh, really? I had a good sitting. It was very peaceful. The breath was like silk. Just wonderful. <laughs> ah, uh, good sitting. So you get into good sitting, bad sitting. And then suddenly loneliness pops up. Uh, how do I, can I switch to channel meta? You know, you know. 
or switch to channel breath or anything. Maybe you'll tell me to do walking meditation. How about looking at loneliness? I didn't come here for that. That's suffering. Okay, so uh, learning how to learn, it's a tremendously important thing. As far, you can call that wisdom. You can call it uh, intelligence. Uh, we've defined intelligence unintelligently, in my opinion. It, we've limited it to just rational, logical, which is a magnificent accomplishment of the human mind. Please understand, there's a time to use thinking and all the beautiful things, that, creative things that look at the world we live in. Uh, of course, also the worst things come out of it as well. And then there's a time to, let, to leave it behind and to enter into the silence, into a mind free of thinking, free of the past, free of psychological time, which is thinking. Um, and part of what we have to learn is that. Um, so the hardest thing to learn, it seems to me, is how to be with what is. So if I had to sum up the essence of vipassana practice, insight practice, it's to not turn away from the facts of the moment, from what is. How to, it's, uh, what the Buddha is talking about again and again is how to open, how to become open, open, until you feel you can't open anymore. And then it opens a little more. Opening means opening to what? To yourself. Opening to your, uh, widening your own capacity to receive your own experience. It's really odd. It's all about us. Our biggest, what we're really terrified is inside us. The greatest joy is also inside us. And we have strong commitments to avoid this, to protect that internally. Forget about the world. And the world comes in and, whoa. So um, let's start. I thought if one thing to do is to review a method um, and I haven't given this much thought, quite honestly. And so I'm going to be winging it, wah, 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 as I go. Um, one reason I picked it is some of you are drawn to anapanasati, which is a method of a full awareness while breathing. And uh, there was a, a period of time where I gave lots of complete instructions on that. And then uh, I've really not. Some people are drawn to it, some are not. It's a wonderful method if it's for you, and it, if it isn't, it's okay. The endless methods. One of the first things I learned, because I've been, I spent eight years in, uh, five years in Korean Zen, and three years in Japanese Zen, and uh, a, a few years in Vietnamese Zen with Thich Nhat Hanh, and different schools of Vipassana, and before that I was in a uh, form of Hinduism in uh, Vedanta, is uh, the immense amount of sectarianism in spiritual circles. It's no different than the political realm and it affects methods and techniques. So I, I saw, well, where do you follow the breath? Let's start with the breath. Simple thing, right? Follow the breath. That's where the, the method of full awareness with breathing begins. And virtually every Buddhist school I know of agrees that that's one very good way to help the mind um, bring all of its scattered energies together, calm down and become focused. Um, okay, where do we locate our attention? Oh. If you go to one, uh, one school, there's no question, the tummy, the abdomen. And then there's a the long reasoning, the hara is there, it's a source of energy, blah, 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 the body. So, great, so while you're practicing there, then you go to another country. And they say, there's only really one place to get very concentrated, it's the nostrils. <laughs> and it's not even the nostrils, it's the touch point. It's like a fraction of the nostrils in the upper lip. Oh, okay. Then you go to another teacher and they'll say, um, 
anywhere. You know, chant wherever it's most vivid. How about here? Or the whole body, that's another one. Uh, the literal translation in the sutra is being sensitive to the whole body, the yogi breathes in. Being sensitive to the whole body, the yogi breathes out. And in different places, it's interpreted in such different ways. Uh, in one, in, in uh, most places in Thailand, not all, uh, they th the whole body is said to be the whole body of the breath at the nostrils. In other words, the full breath. To me, that sounds like you trivi we're trivializing it. It's also in the part of the sutra that's about the body. Um, and so, what to do? And then, uh, how about eyes? Should we keep our eyes open, half open, or closed? I, and you, some of you have heard these questions. Maybe you have them yourself. How many people are really fairly new? On Wednesday night, there are often people. A show of hands, please. Yeah. Good. I mean, that's, so I'm glad I'm taking this up. Um, and they, again, there's a beautiful rationale for no matter what you want to say. They were all, I felt everyone was correct. Okay. Eyes open. You're not looking, trying to see anything, but it's a, a, a non-focused gaze. Why is that better? Well, you tend not to fall asleep so much and you don't fantasize as much. Okay, sounds good. I'll do that for five years. Then you go somewhere else. <laughs> you go somewhere else and they say, oh, no, no, no. You'll be distracted by all the different things, sensations and light and this and that. No, keep your eyes closed. Now, the eyes open folks, they say if you close your eyes, you'll be falling asleep and daydreaming and fantasizing all the time. The eyes closed folks, they'll say if you keep your eyes open, uh, you're going to be distracted all the time. Definitely the eyes closed. Then you got the halfway, you know, <laughs> the independence. <laughs> uh, I've watched too much politics lately. Uh, which is the eyes are half open and you're not trying to see anything. Uh, and, if, and I could go on, some emphasized posture to the point where you feel you're in a chiropractor's office and others hardly mention it. Uh, who do, what to do? What I discovered is everyone's right. And so uh, eventually uh, I find that the practice is very much in an individual matter. Learning is learning how to live for you, for me. Uh, and only you can do it. And the art of uh, Dharma is the art of living. Wisdom is, is skill in living. We have so many different skills. You, if we went around the room and everyone, you know, I'm sure we have a wide representation in science, pottery, cooking, dance, painting, writing, endless skills represented here. I'm sure of it. Okay. The skill that the Buddha is talking about is skill in living. Skill in living. What does it mean to live skillfully? And we, we will get to that. Um, so what I've found is, since the purpose of being with the breath in the first place is to re-educate the mind so that it doesn't run after all of its productions in a wild way, whatever the mind produces, uh, something, about, some, something about tomorrow that it imagines will happen, or suddenly it's lost in yesterday, or it makes up even what's going on here. Uh, and we get lost in that. And that's normal. One of the, the things that every meditator discovers, as far as I know, and it wasn't different thousands of years ago, and that was very reassuring when I read ancient texts, and I saw the mind was no different then. What we see is the untrained mind is wild. And the Tibetans, I think, appropriately call that an, an accomplishment, an achievement. They call that attaining the cascading mind, meaning you start to see the mind as cascades like a waterfall. It's wild. 
And so that's a kind of learning. You might say, who needs to learn that? You know, what I want to learn is good stuff. But a lot of learning any skill is, and this makes the difference, I think, one of the main things that makes the difference between those of us who learn any skill and those who don't, is you have to be able to face the way it is and see the effects of what you do, and that includes mistakes. If you can't admit you've made a mistake, whether it's in any, any art form or craft, uh, and particularly in living, then how can you correct it? How can you live? How can you learn how to live? Uh, so that, and that requires humility, and for many of us, it's almost insurmountable. Because the ego is very good at find, looking, seeing everyone else's mistakes, and very hard for it to look at its own. Is it just my ego, or have you seen that too? <laughs> if you haven't, it's very important to see that, not to punish yourself, but to understand, like when the Tibetans say, you've attained cascading mind, that's the first of a number of uh, uh, kind of accomplishments that come out of meditation. What it means is you've seen, oh, this is the natural state of my mind because it hasn't been educated to be any different. It just runs around all day long unless I give it a, an assignment like your job and, and so forth or a conversation with someone. And it's doing this. Now, that can be extraordinarily humiliating, particularly uh, in Cambridge and environs for educated people because uh, the, the most graphic example I know is a brain surgeon from uh, Mass General. Uh, very, very well known in his field, and obviously high level of concentration, exquisite it must be. He's working, opening up a human brain and going in there. Uh, but when it came to his own brain, forget about it. Or as they say, the mafia say, forget about it. Uh, and within three or four sessions, he never came back. Uh, I did get this, I, I had an inkling of it where he, you could see he was, it was humiliating for him. Now, so that there's a fork in the road in almost everything that happens as we progress on the path. Uh, for those of you who are rather new and even those who've been around, it keeps being this way. Things happen to us. Shit happens. I mean, uh, life is, we don't own life. It's unex th unexpected things happen. Things are constantly changing. The law of impermanence, Anicca, is one of the main teachings of the Buddha. Everything is changing and in uncertain ways. There are a lot of surprises in life. Not all bad, but it's not going according to schedule. Is anyone's life the way it is right now exactly the what you thought it would be? How did I get here saying these kinds of things, coming from uh, Coney Island in Brooklyn? I have no idea. <laughs> I can give you a sophisticated psychological way saying my mother and my father did this. And I, you know, like, it's convincing on one level. Another level, I don't have a clue. How did I wind up here saying these things? Okay, but here I am. So now, the fork in the road is you can, as you see, your mind is wild for those, whether it's the breath or any other object to concentrate. It's a very important point of learning. What you learn is your mind is wild. Now you can take that as valuable. That's that you learn something, even though it isn't what you want to be. Now, if all you want to learn is is good stuff, that's not learning. That's something else. But learning is seeing what's there, and a skill is developed by exercising the skill and then seeing the consequence of it. Cooking, you, you use the ingredients, you taste it, mmm, too much X, Y, Z. 
Next time, little less X, Y, Z. Hmm, too little. Then you find, and so if you're not willing to pay attention to how you live, whether it's verbally or with people or uh, action, physical action, and see the consequences of what you do, cause and effect, and see that some causes produce effects that, produ that are suffering for you and for other people. That's what Buddha Dharma is about. The Buddha's teaching, the skill that's being learned, the skill in living, is if you read the teachings of the Buddha, the original teachings, there are two themes that emerge over and over again. There was endless, he didn't really give talks, it was more, for the most part, dialogues, exchanges, people would come with problems from every walk of life. And then that brought up a way of looking at the same teaching, Four Noble Truths, it's, it's all there. Those who want to read a little bit, that would be a good idea. And uh, all of it is given in a certain way to help the person straighten themselves out, uh, to learn. Um, the two themes that I've seen the most of is one that uh, life is constantly, all forms are constantly changing. You see that over and over again. That's one of the main meanings of Vipassana. Insight. Into what? Insight into the changing nature of all forms. All forms. Uh, subatomic, uh, macroscopic, cosmic, uh, your mind, a tree, uh, the planet. Everything is changing. And the other theme is skillful and unskillful. Sometimes in translations, you may read it as wholesome and unwholesome. I don't particularly like that term. It, in our time, it has a bit of a self-righteous or a righteous tone to it, and it's a bit archaic. Um, and more and more people are starting to see that skillful is really what's meant. Skillful in the Buddha's use of that term is those actions, verbal, uh, mental, verbal, and physical, that produce a beneficial, a beneficial outcome for yourself and for others. It's sensible. Well, unskillful is what produces suffering. And that's the curriculum. The curriculum is, and where do you learn this? In a classroom with a blackboard? Or at CIMC? You can learn stuff here. We're, a lot of what goes on here is we're preparing you to have the kind of mind that is able to look at, to not say, let's get out of here, but to say, let's stay here and take a look at how much we want to get out of here. Uh, because it's only natural to not, okay, let's stay with that. So the fork in the road with just a simple in and out breath is what's possible to learn is you see the nature of your mind is so wild. If you use it to contribute to despair and a conclusion about yourself that you're no good, you're, you'll never be able to learn this, fine, that chapter's closed. If you make difficult, you're out. If you see it as, ah, this is the way things are right now, it's this way, and understand is that the cavalry is coming, there's help on the way. Actually, CIMC is the cavalry, and IMS, and you know, Tibetan centers. In other words, there's been help available for thousands of years. And it's all, it, all you have to do is do it. So how, do, how does that happen? Well, first of all, I, I don't see why the breath is emphasized. These are, I'm uh, encapsulating a whole bunch of different questions that have come at me over and over again. Why do we focus on the breath? What's the big deal? For one thing, it's not exactly a small deal, as simple as it is. 
uh, and sometimes people have such a hard time getting it that I have to use Brooklyn yoga. And so I've told people to do, just close off your nostrils and, keep, and purse your lips very tightly. Okay, try it. Okay. And just keep it like that for the next 10 or 15 minutes. <laughs> or is, to be breathing is to be alive. Uh, you're looking at, in a sense, you're, you're, start, you're realizing, I'm alive. Now you can then turn that into a mechanical process, which happens. You do enough of it, in, out, in, out, in, out, in, out. Okay. Uh, then you have to wake up from that. Okay. But what's so important about the breath, aside from the fact that it's, it's, a, it's life itself, is that breath or anything else that you use to help develop this ability of, of, st of stability, samadhi, a mind that's stable, focused, is that to begin with, the mind's all over the place. Okay. Most of you know these instructions. Maybe some of you new people don't. Uh, the instructions are simple. Whenever you see that you're not with the breath, wherever you've decided to pick it up, nose, tummy, wherever, eyes open, half open, shut, I don't know if you can figure out another way, uh, just escort your attention back, right effort. It's just come back to the in-breath and the out-breath. And then it wanders off again. Come back again. If it wanders off a hundred times, you come back a hundred times. If it wanders off twice, you come back twice. And then, of course, the mind is not going to listen to what was just said because it has old tapes that at a certain point, this is worthless or you're no good, you can't do this. And then if you believe in it, in your own thought process, then if you make, I can't do it, I'm hopeless, then you have hopeless, gone. But if you see that as just thoughts, these are all, this is all learning. You have to learn it for yourself. It's in books. Everything I'm saying is in books. But it's dead until you actually make it part of your own bloodstream the marrow of your bones, you see it firsthand for yourself, otherwise you've borrowed it from the Buddha or Roshi or whoever. Uh, it has to be your own. And little by little you start to see that, oh, that's interesting. First of all, you start seeing how the mind spends its time. Uh, it's very interesting to, to learn about that. You'll see that it repeats some of the same things over and over again. These fascinating themes that take you away from the breath. This one, that I've been it's going on for how long? Oh, about 27 years, you know. Like, I'm going to tell my father, but he doesn't. No, 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 he's not going to tell Okay. Your father died 10 years ago. It's a little late. Well, I'm going to tell him anyway. When? You know. Okay, so deep trenches in the mind from conflicts that don't get resolved, uh, repressed uh, tendencies and so forth. You start seeing how the mind squanders energy there's tremendous energy wasted internally. When we think of energy, we think of physical. Take more ginseng, eat this food, exercise, go to the gym, you know, the different machines and all that. That's all good too. But mental energy, there's tremendous source of energy inside us. And as the mind gets quieter, you'll see what an incredible reservoir of energy is available. It's subtle. Uh, and it is powerful and it's infinite. And I'll give you an example of the best one I know. So uh, you start to see that, oh, duh, I get it. My mind has been exhausting itself with these futile uh, preoccupations. Now and then there's something useful going on in the mind. I don't mean when you're using it skillfully, like in a laboratory or at your work. Of course, there are, there are skillful uses of the mind. But then let's say when you start seeing how often it is not using its, uh, itself well. It's a learning. You start seeing, whoa, 
Look at all that energy. What does it really amount to? And then the other side is kind of carrot stick. You see the liability of an unexamined mind. When you don't understand yourself, you don't know that you're doing this. You're not aware of it. Uh, the carrot part is more and more you start getting, being able to stay with the breath if you do it. In, out, in, out, and there's a certain beauty that comes from that. There's a joy that comes from it. I hope those of you who are very, very new, if you haven't experienced it, it's lawful. You will experience it if you do it. You can't think your way through this one. The thoughts are helpful in that they remind you to do it. But uh, I know that there are some people in the room who know that know it for themselves, that as the attention to the breathing becomes more continuous, there's a certain joy that seems inherent, a peace, a calm that is there. Some of that, a large part of it, is that simply the mind has gotten quiet. All of those voices, conflicts, and unfulfilled aspirations and yearnings and all the rest of it. It's taken, a, you know, it's, granted it's not gone, but it's uh, under a rock, let's say. And so you feel that, that you can start to begin to feel, you know, your nature without all of that mental cl uh, clutter is pretty happy already. It's an important kind of learning. And then you want to do more of that. Then the breath, you don't ask questions like, well, why do I, should I follow the breath? What's the big deal about the breath? It isn't the breath. The breath, what, what it is, is we're using the breath, I'm picking the breath tonight, it's just one of many, uh, in order to help the mind learn how to stabilize itself and to begin to see what wildness is, to see how much of its time is spent in an imaginary future that never happens, how much of its time is spent in a past that's over with, never to be reclaimed again, impossible. It's a memory. It's a future man. Now, sometimes it does mean that there aren't useful uses of envisioning the future, planning, and so forth. Of course there are, but you know what you're doing, but that isn't what I'm talking about. And it doesn't mean that you can never, well, I can't talk about my family or where I went to school because I'm now a, a Vipassana yogi. We have no past and we have no future. <laughs> uh, I don't, that, no, it's, but you start understanding your relationship to what you, we call the past. And, and stop misusing it. And you start realizing that life is lived in the present moment. All of this is learning, and I'm, ju and I'm just on a simple breath. We haven't even gotten to the big stuff yet. Okay, so in this particular method, I always forget when I'm supposed to end. Where's my, where's my guide? 8.30? Bob, you have notes up there, hopefully. I think oh. around 9 o'clock. No, oh, no, that, we have to allow time for questions. Look, it may, maybe the breath will be enough. I don't know. Uh, I, I told you that when you teach this way, there are problems. You know, <laughs> I had a whole bunch of much more interesting stuff to cover, but I, we may just not get to it. Um, okay, so now you're seeing that uh, here's a, something that I've learned from teaching uh, uh, this form of meditation for a fair number of years. Um, first of all, learning it on myself is sometimes we're exhausted, emotionally exhausted from our work, family life, school, all the, whatever, the challenges of living. Um, and we come to a place like this, and a growing number of places like this, just tell me what to do. Don't ask me to investigate, inquire, learn. I've done enough of that. Just give me my method and technique, in, out, in, out, in, out, lifting, moving, placing, lifting, moving, placing, and then I'll be all right, right? No. It, 
there are techniques, there are methods, but that is just the bare surface of what a practice is. A practice can't be separated from you, from your life. The path, well, I, I have a path now. I'm following the Eightfold Path of the Buddha. The path isn't a set of stones. You are the path. The, your mind is the path. That's where you, it's just a metaphor. There's no path in a sense. It's just all the different, now the, the Buddha's laying out, he had to use some language, a path of different qualities that can be developed to enable you to get free of suffering. And that is your clue as to whether you know the practice is uh, aligned with these teachings. You, look, you, if you don't want to do the, uh, be aligned with these teachings, that's fine. But if you're here, I have to assume two things. One, you care about the quality of your life. Otherwise, why would you be here? And two, that there's the possibility that this approach to living may have something to offer that helps you improve the quality of your life, that helps you get free, that helps you suffer less, that helps you let go of what needs to be let go of, that helps you see the depth of what it means to be human. Remember, in the, in the, when the Buddha talks about ignorance, uh, there are many meanings to the ignorance, but one of the meanings, not emphasized perhaps enough in my opinion, is that we're ignorant of our full potential. We, we don't realize how much richness each one of us has, everyone here, everyone. Uh, but it's obscured by our preoccupations with who? With who you think you are. Who do you think you are? Anyway. <laughs> okay. Uh, as long as we're trying to fix up this little self and make it perfect, it's a hopeless task. I've, I've been at it a little long. I mean, I gave up a while ago, but uh, now and then I forget, and there I am, you know, putting up night interior decorating and painting the, the prison a nicer color and <laughs> putting nice picture family photographs, you know, and then, but I still am not free. You know, there are the bars. They're still there. Oh, paint them gold. It's more pleasant. <laughs> get new blinds. Maybe get a good interior director, uh, decorator. Okay. Uh, it's not about improving the prison. It's about getting free. And even the teachings, they're not a perfect blueprint. They're a, if, if you read the Buddha carefully, what he's saying is any map of, let's say it's a map of the human mind and the way in which that mind produces suffering and the way in which it can learn how not to do that is imperfect. It's like the map of a prison. Let's say you get the map of a prison. It's not going to be exactly the way the physical prison is, but it can help you escape. It's close enough to help you escape. So the teachings are like that. They're words about reality. They're words about reality. Is, that, is everyone understand? How could the words are never the thing? No description, no matter how rich, great writers and poets have that ability to come closer, but they're still partial. They're inadequate. They're incomplete. If you throw the words out, then there's raw naked life. Both are needed, but we have to learn the difference. Because often especially among people who are educated and intellectual. When we have a, beautiful, a beautifully phrased sentence or two, or an explanation that's brilliant, it's very, very satisfying. And then we feel our job is done. It hasn't even begun. No, it's begun. It's just a beautiful, wonderful menu, embossed in gold, nicely done, wonderful graphics. But you can't chew on it because it's cardboard. It's not real food. So the menu has its place. It's pointing. 
this, is, this might be what you can order. And then you got to get someone from the kitchen to bring it out, and that's not enough. You can't just look at it. You then got to you know, put it in the mouth, chew it, and then decide whether you like it or not. It's the same with these teachings. First, there are conceptual teachings. That's mostly what I'm doing tonight. Then there's your ability to understand it, the words, and as best you can, and then to put it into practice if you decide to do that. That means, well, enough has been said so that I have provisional faith. It, this is not a faith path in the sense of if I have faith in the Buddha, my job is done. It's not about beliefs and faith. Although faith or confidence has some meaning, it's provisional. If you don't, uh, you have to start, and you need some confidence that this may be useful to mobilize, to arouse enough energy to set in motion the practices so you can find out if it's useful or not. So it, ha it has its place, and at a certain point, it's not needed anymore, because if you've gone deeply enough, it's been verified. If it has, that's for you to decide. Obviously, I'm going to say that. I am in the business. I tell you, everyone this over and over again. Do not trust me. I'm a used car salesman, a used, a used Dharma teacher salesman. My job is to sell this stuff. I could be full of baloney. I could be Elliot Spitzer or whatever, you know. <laughs> and when I leave here, full of attachments and, you know, uh, uh, drinking and shooting up, you know. Uh, <laughs> cruel or serial killer. I mean, who knows? Well, you don't know what I am. And so maybe I'm, I have a good rap. See what I... But, uh, okay, I, I just put the center out of business, but it's okay. Um, actually, that's not true. I got criticized many years ago by a rabbi. This was a retreat at our IMS. It was, I think it was a two-week retreat. There were a lot of uh, uh, Jewish people I would say fallen Jews, and a rabbi was on it. Okay. And at the end of the retreat, you know, some of you have gone, you have a go, on, go around and people kind of say how the retreat was, and the rabbi was furious with me. I said, Rabbi, uh, why are you so angry with me? You know, he said a few things, and he said, you're leading all these Jewish people away, you're, you're taking them into Buddhism, away from Judaism. I'm saying, but I thought uh, what I've been doing all along, I don't feel there's been any missionary energy in it. <clears throat> I'm saying, here's the teaching. Try it out. If it works, use it. If not, uh, uh, then go somewhere else. He's saying, exactly. That's how you suck them in. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so now what? So now you don't know, what, you don't know what's going on here. The only way you can resolve it, if you're drawn to trust your intuition, if those of you who are here for the first time, if some of it sounds a little bit sane, sensible, give it a try and find out. If you feel, this doesn't feel right for me, there are many other styles of meditation. There really are lots. And there's no one for everyone. Then try, some, try a few others till you find the, what is called a path with heart. Very important. I was on many paths till I found, for me, this is the path with heart. That doesn't mean it will be for you. I don't know. So I'm just, this is the spirit in which the Buddha taught. The Buddha said, don't give absolute authority to something because it's ancient, because your teacher said it so, because it's logical, because it's this. He listed 10, ten re said, of course, listen to the counsel of the wise, but then you have to be the final authority. It's, and use 
your life, the, uh, whether an action produces skillful outcome or an unskillful outcome. Does it produce suffering, harm for you and others, or is it beneficial? So there's a, a, an indicator. It's objective in the sense of your own conclusion that this is not working for me. This is causing me to suffer. Okay. Now let's just finish up with... No, we have a couple of minutes. Let's stay with the breath. I don't think we're going to get any further than the breath. The sutra goes into feelings and the mind, and although they've already come in, because there's only one thing going on, we haven't gotten to letting go, enlightenment, and you know, all that, but maybe a little bit we have. Um, if you stay with the breathing, and you can learn, if you do it, you'll learn how to do it. It's, uh, it's just another human skill. It can be learned, but you have to do it. Uh, being with the breathing, not simply what can help if you're drawn to it, is from time to time throughout the day, not just on the cushion, uh, keep the breath in mind, especially when you see the mind starting to get complicated and you're getting lost in something. Sometimes all you need to do, because the breath is recurrent, it's portable, it's always there, just no, no special effort is needed. You just feel a breath or two and suddenly uh, things are simple and you're in the present moment again and then from that place you can listen to the person or try to make the best decision or whatever it is. The more you use it, of course, the more it becomes vivid. Let's say, however you do it, what tends to happen, what happens if you do it, <clears throat> is you go deeper and deeper is what are called absorptions. You become very, very deeply absorbed in the mind and you leave behind temporarily all of your problems. No problems. They go into abeyance. They're not uprooted. It's just you've switched to channel breath away from channel trouble. Okay. And, in a, and then you can get into incredible bliss and peace and you want to just stay there. You never want to leave. <clears throat> you don't want to go back to work. You're, you don't want to forget about your relationships, children. You know, like, oh, how can, I'm going to go to Burma and become a monk or a nun. I'm going to go to IMS and just live there, be join the staff. And, uh, <laughs> and then at a certain point, you see that this too is impermanent. It falls away, and then you try to get it back, and you suffer. And if you have a teacher who's tremendously situated in wisdom, this is a wisdom path. Everything that you do, whether it's metta, uh, generosity, dana, serving, whatever, it's in the service of helping you develop wisdom because it's the wisdom that helps you unlearn. That's what skill is. Unlearn what is causing suffering for you and for others. And so if something contributes to that, then it's, it's helpful. If it doesn't, then as pleasant as it may feel, it is not helping you accomplish your own personal liberation. So that, for example, if you become tremendously absorbed as you can, in the peace that comes from just simple breath awareness and think that that's the end of the practice and then suddenly it ends as it will and then you try to get it back and you suffer. If you have a good friend or a teacher or someone more experienced than you, they'll say, can you see that this too is subject to arising, passing away? And, any, and if you attach to it, which is what happens, I don't know anyone who doesn't get attached to it. I certainly did. Ah, in, out, in, out, in, out. Oh, good feeling. Okay. It had a little bit of a Korean accent because my teacher used to, <laughs> my teacher used to mock me. Yeah. So, um, do you learn from that? You see, oh, 
well, why did we bother doing it? Okay, then the heck with the breath. What good is it? You don't get free. It's not true. What happens is you're refining the mind by the use of the breath or metta. Or there are many other concentration devices, themes, meditation themes, um, so that the mind becomes stronger, steadier, uh, more refined, clearer, more at peace, and that it's fit to then look at itself. It has a certain, um, like physical fitness, we're, we know what that is, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, all the machines that everyone's running around on now, okay. Uh, this is mental fitness. The mind is now equipped to look at fear, better equipped, to look at loneliness, to look at anger, whatever it is. Now, there still has to be the, the will to do that, and that's the hard part, is to learn how to turn to what is. And the let's get out of here, there's, there's a reason why that was such a... a uh, frequent theme in films. It's because we are trying to get out of what we conceive of as unfulfilling and always get to what we think of as fulfilling, which in turn perhaps doesn't do the job forever. And then we keep, we're insatiable in trying to find the perfect partner, the perfect home, the perfect job, whatever it is. It takes a while to learn that. Some of us don't never learn it. Okay. Uh, you can learn it however you learn it. You can learn it from success, you can learn it from failure, you can learn it in a, a retreat in a cave, you can learn it in Har to Harvard Square. Uh, it's about learning, it's not how much sitting you clock. Uh, you know, it's not like, let's see, I've sat uh, how many, 27 hours this week, 27 hours of sitting. Uh, it's not the quantity of sitting, how much walking meditation, let's see. I did put in 12 hours of walking meditation, six hours of yoga, uh, <laughs> Uh, keep a little record book. Uh, it's what you learn. Uh, does it help you get free or not? Does it help you unlearn what is harmful? And it's for you to determine, how do you know if something's harmful or not? We human beings, there are a couple of things, and one is we often are very defended against looking, we don't want to look at what's unpleasant. The first noble truth will end here, okay, I promise. The first, because some of you have to get home, I know that. The first noble truth is there is suffering in life. Well, what in the world is noble about that? We look around the world and there's no shortage of suffering. Does that ennoble you? Not necessarily. It just exhausts you, embitters you, uh, etc. What's noble about it is what you do with it. So what we have to... Step number one, what would you learn here? First of all, what I would suggest is learn about what your relationship, anytime you're suffering, little suffering like little impatience or anguish to, to, to sorrow, to whatever, whatever's going on. Uh, start to get self-knowing has to do with seeing uh, some people drown in it. That's their tendency. They just get swallowed up by it and just uh, really suffer. Other people are very good at denying it, escaping it, uh, putting a rock over it, uh, going, switching to channels, anything, channel food, channel breath, channel movies, channel sex, uh, just to get away from it. The Dharma approach, and this is the hardest thing personally, to teach and to learn. It's not these techniques. It's to help the person see the immense value of learning how to look at suffering. One of the reasons that it's a noble truth is that it's the doorway to liberation. If you don't understand how you make suffering for yourself, 
uh, doesn't it follow, it just seems so sensible, maybe I've been doing this stuff too long, it seems so sensible that you have to take care of that. You have to uh, learn about why your mind leads to behavior that seems to cause suffering so much. And see cause and effect, karma if you like, a better, maybe that will make it more interesting to you. Oh, that's my karma. Uh, it's cause and effect. A lot, many scientifically minded people are drawn to this teaching because that culture uh, puts a high premium on, on learning and ca cause and effect whether it's experimental or whatever, any kind of science. It, it's a, a form of clear thinking. Okay. So here, examining how we live, seeing when we're skillful, when we're unskillful. So like with the breath, we wouldn't drop the breath. We'd use it for what it's useful for, which is to bring in calm, rejuvenate the mind, refresh ourselves, and then t to open it up. And if we had more time, the rest of the method is, with or without the breathing as a good friend, because the breath is always there, you can draw upon it, is then opening up to what? To yourself as you are. To the feelings, emotions, moods, likes, dislikes, uh, cravings, uh, kindness, cruelty, whatever is, it, whatever is in there. And seeing it all arise and pass away, this opens you up to another dimension of existence. And that's what I meant when the Buddha said, one meaning of ignorance is that we're ignorant of our full potential. Uh, if we try to get this full potential in this enclosure that the thinking mind has made through our story, the story of me and my life, it started with people told us about ourselves, and we've been bi building that story all along. When we start to realize this is an enclosure, a limitation on what's possible, and we start to look at it carefully, it doesn't stand the test of observation. We learn that, uh, and I think I have to just stop here. Uh, and so you can see, for me, adding this dimension of inquiry, of learning, of uh, skill in living makes it alive. If we're just a bundle of techniques, uh, it sounds, how much of that can you take? Uh, it's not a matter of, uh, conforming to, you know, getting up at the same time every day, that can be very helpful to begin with. You know, sitting for 45 minutes, walking for 20 minutes, uh, then again in the evening, do it. But don't make that stand for the whole thing. And if, it, if it's done in the spirit of being mechanical, it's sort of canned, and it, it eventually can become that way. And it doesn't include the nuances of learning from your life as you live it. I think you'll find the practice rather, rather limiting for yourself. Okay, those of you who have to leave, please do so. Now, if some of you can stay a little longer during the Q&A, um, it's, it's not rude for me if you want to leave. Can you talk about that? Talking about what? The, the infinite mental energy. Uh, you alluded to an example. Yes, I didn't give you the example. Thank you very much. One of my main teachers uh, was a man named Krishnamurti. He was... Now, um, I saw him about a year before he died. He, was, he died just shy of 91. And there were about six or seven of us. We met with him for a week somewhere in New York, a couple hours in the morning. Couple, and I hadn't seen him in about a year. And he came in the door, and I was shocked when I saw how old he had become, how frail. You know, just, uh, he was a very, very old man. 
He had had many illnesses. He'd been traveling around the world teaching for 60 years. No one understands what he's talking about. You know, and he just goes on. You know, these are different times. I think he would have been received. And, but he was a pioneer in that sense. Okay. And I felt like my heart dropped a bit. I just thought, what, what is, we used to call him K. What is he doing this to himself? I mean, he's a, he should be home in a rocking chair or something. You know. And then as soon as we started in on Dharma, some energy came from somewhere. And he was younger than any of us. And this was 20 years ago or so, 15, I don't know, so longer. There's a certain kind of energy has not. Now, in one sense, the whole practice well, one a very important aspect of practice is learning how to generate energy and then how to direct it inte intelligently. Some of that energy, we're available. It's physical. Okay. Proper diet, exercise, we, we, we know about all that. Uh, some of us are just, uh, uh, it's genetic. We, we're endowed with a certain amount of energy. And then what you're getting at is when the mind becomes silent, I mean really silent, what you discover is a dimension that perhaps you didn't know was there. Most of us don't. Our culture doesn't know it's there. It's not just America, it's the modern culture. And when you al allow that to affect you, that silence, which is infinite, um, it's a source of um, extraordinarily refined energy. I, it's silence, so any words I use are going to be very coarse compared to what it is. But something is how you come out of it much more loving, kinder, uh, clearer, and it's, you're not cultivating anything. It's not trying to be, I'm not trying to be a compassionate person. There are techniques and methods to try to prime the pump and make you meta and so forth. They're good methods. They work from the outside in. But when you tap what is sometimes called your intrinsic nature, your Buddha nature, your original heart, or wholeness, W-H-O-L-E. There's no, because the thinking fragments us. We make ourselves into a this or a that. Ethnic group, religion, I'm an American, I'm a Republican, I'm a this, I'm, and then endless, okay? And we kind of enclose ourselves, and then we meet other people who are doing that with themselves, okay? And we, okay, as that falls away, that's been a, a corner of a very large field. Now, when I say the whole thing is energy, that's, I think, modern physics. Uh, I had a chat with a, uh, a physicist uh, who was a student of Krishnamurti um, and was learning these things, who knew Einstein and worked with him. And he said it's, uh, what they had in common was this openness. They had a childlike quality. Don't know mind, beginner's mind, you may have heard of that. It means a freshness and openness. No matter how much you already know, you don't throw it away. It's just you're able to be, take a fresh look at things. Uh, we're, we're trying to help that become part of your life. Now, see, mindfulness, you've heard that term, right? Uh, till it's coming out of your ears. And if, you, if you're new, it, you know, you'll hear it a lot. Or awareness, or attention. Mindfulness is seeing energy. In other words, let's say it's not, throw the word out. Let's say you're mindful of a pain in your knee. That means something in the mind is turned to that. Now, how much does that energy weigh? How much, what color is it? Where is it? It's formless. And yet, when the energy of seeing touches the pain, something happens. When there's fear, and now for that energy to be pure, it means it has no objective other than it's not for or against anything. Whereas real mindfulness is non-reactive, non-judgmental. 
It's like a mirror. It just reflects back what's there. That's energy. And the object itself has energy. Fear, loneliness, pain. So the, the whole universe is energy. We now, you know, that's one useful way of looking at it. Uh, so uh, this, I would say that in answer to your question, you gain access to a source of energy that has nothing necessarily to do with your age, physical age. Now, you still have to express it through a vehicle, the physical, and if your physical vehicle is damaged in certain ways, like let's say you can't speak, or the brain is damaged. Um, here's a, a, a there is a uh, Sri Nishargadat, who was a great uh, yoga master. When he was in his late 80s, someone asked him, what's it like being an old yogi? And he said, um, well, every day I see my mind uh, deteriorate, I see senility coming in more and more each day, and then he just roared with laughter. What, it, what he was trying to say is he's situated at a place that's deeper than what's going on with the brain. Now, whether modern science would believe that or not, that's their business. But it may turn out to be true. But uh, you can't decide to go there. Uh, in other words, the brain is central. It's very important. Take good care of the brain and the body because you need it. So do you see what... Now, the silence itself is a ocean of energy. Uh, it's even more subtle than what we're already... That what, we, what we do know of silence. And it gets more and more refined. Like sometimes people will say the sound of silence. You can hear that. It's a subtle sound. And then at a certain point, even that falls away. It's, uh, it's a science. It can be experienced. It's available to human beings. It's not, the Buddhists don't have a patent on it. It's not like only Buddhists can get to this place. It has nothing to do with that. I don't think the Buddha was a Buddhist. That, you know, he was a student of life and of the mind. And uh, I think more and more, uh, we're going to find that there's some value in this mind science that whether you want to be a religious Buddhist or not, that's your business. But you don't have to be to gain benefit from these. This, one of the main meanings of Dharma is lawfulness. The, 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 so the, the lawfulness of the nature of things. Only here, and a person is not considered separate from nature. We're all part of nature. Does that, you see okay. Please. goes back to the very beginning of, of a book you wrote, and, um, and it might not be appropriate for you to talk about Just it. ask it. Okay. You've got a long wind-up here. There was a story you told about having a teacher who you didn't identify because he didn't want to be identified. Oh, yes. And he woke you up in the middle of the night and brought you to a place where there was a person who had just drowned. A corpse, and, yes. who had been uh, <laughs> discovered after being dead for about ten days. Yes. Yes, and you you stated that that was considered to meditate with the corpse. Yes. Was considered a very valuable practice. No question about it. And um, in in that culture. And so in that I'm, culture, for humans. And so I'm. Oh, I'm, you, I'm go curious ahead. about how how that is why that's considered such a valuable. What do you think it might be of some value? Be me for the moment. Give me a break so I don't have to talk so much. Well, I think it, all of us are aging. Exactly. And all of us are going to die. Exactly. And I think the root of all my fear 
comes from that? Bingo. <laughs> you just won nothing. <laughs> yes. For example, if, uh, uh, look, I, I, the last thing I ever want to do is look at a book I wrote. I'd never read them after they're done, if I can help it. Okay. Uh, what this teacher did with me is he's, he woke me up in the middle of the night and said he was incredibly excited. This was in, uh, a corpse had been found. And the local villagers, it was washed up. He had been drunk and died. And the local villagers couldn't touch it because he was from another religion or, I don't know, some, excuse me, some idiocy. And there was a priest coming from another village in the morning, and when he came there, he could officiate and do the, the right religious things, and they could bring him back to the village he was from, and then they could have a proper burial. So, and since we were outsiders, would we mind, it was packed in ice, and he was bloated and bluish, and suddenly I'm awakened to this, and this teacher was ecstatic with the good news. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, I figured, you can imagine how I felt. Okay, so I'm sitting there, and what, what did we do? All we did was we'd sit, and he said, just be with what's, what this, and he said, well, what should I do? He said, he didn't give me much help. And then periodically he'd say, uh, what are you feeling right now? And I'd say, I, on the edge of throwing up. He said, be aware of that. You know, repulsion, uh, the smell, etc. So uh, what he was trying to do is to get me uh, to be at home with, and fear definitely came up, with those fears so that I could either weaken them and maybe there are some human beings who are done with it and they know that dying is as natural as being born. Of course you're going to die. What's, why are we playing this game in our head? Uh, to, because the main reason the teachings are given is so that we, it's, most people are interested, is there life after death? That's fascinating to people, i found. And what I find much more fascinating is their life before death, <laughs> meaning us. Okay, so this can, what it can do, and this is what the Buddha intended, one of the things he intended, is to help you understand you don't have forever. You will die, and so what it, what it can serve to do, it did for me, is you start to realize the people in your life, how precious they are. Uh, life itself, how precious it is. We, that's a teach, the corpse is teaching. It's saying, you don't have forever, buddy and without words. Anyone who dies is giving you a Dharma lesson if you're, there, if you're open to learn it. <clears throat> but what he was trying to do is to flush out certain obvious fears that he knew I had. And it was a, a big help. Does, does that, but you got it on your own, yeah. See, you don't need teachers for everything. Use your own innate intelligence. If you just pay attention, you'll see. It's, it's, so life is teaching all the time. Okay, yes. Um, have you, um, well, something you said uh, about running uh, movies in movies, running oh, yes. away from, uh, was making me think of a book uh, by Mark Epstein called Thoughts Without a Thinker. Have yes. You, have you read that? No, I haven't, but I, I know Mark, but I have not read the book. Oh, okay. I, I love that book. I, it's, it's, the thrust of it for me is... is uh, What's the title again? Thoughts Without a Thinker. Yes. And I forget the subtitle. That's okay. I, I know what he was dealing but with. But it's basically like acts as a corrective to the Western mind's misappropriation of Buddhist or, or Eastern wisdom to the Western mindset. And take, for example, um, people that have psychological problems uh, in the West. Um, if, they can, if they can 
they might misappropriate a Buddhist notion of detachment of self and, and think that, well, if there's no self, then I have no problems. And so their way of running away from their problems is to have a no self. Yeah, but you see, to me, so what... There, there's a delicate, deli I guess it's a delicate balance. One of the things uh, uh, he mentioned is, is that people that, that in, the, in the Eastern wisdom of detachment from self, it presumes a strong ego construct to begin with. But if someone has a tattered um, and smashed, uh, very delicate or fragile self-ego self-construct, self then it could be very um, damaging, and the, the tendency to misappropriate. Yeah. May um, I ask you something? Oh, sure. Yeah. How has that helped you? The book or? Uh, what you, you obviously, it's favorable. How has it helped you? Um, well, because I look at my own life mm -hmm. and, and I see, I, I mean, obviously that I'm bringing this question up because it, it means something to me. That's what I want to find out. But you're going to have to be very, very concrete. See, because so far it's been Eastern culture, Western culture. It's right. a little bit, let's get in closer. Your mind, how, how has that book helped you with your thought process? If, if I think, for instance, I have not had a strong self, uh, ego's construct, growing up, like if I had a hard, a hard childhood growing up, and so I had a fragile ego, not a strong ego, then, then um, if I wanted to escape from my problems, um, the, the, the notion of self-detachment has a, an allure to me um, that I can escape my, my own problems by just saying I have a no-self. Yes, okay. Now, but let me translate. I'm trying not to be abstract. No, you're getting closer. You're getting closer. But I'm going to, I don't know if you see what you think. I th I'd like to get us even closer. Okay. Um, as a practice, what I uh, would take, what you're saying is, uh, first of all, I wouldn't use the word detachment, but non-attachment. Non-attachment. Yeah, it's okay. You, it's just a, a, detachment implies a pulling away from and looking from a distance, safe. Maybe we begin that way, but non-attachment and what real awareness is, is not a pulling away from, but an opening up to, only not grasping or pushing away. It's intimate. Okay. Now, a, your use of appropriating, let's say, I'm going to translate that, I think it's a good word for it. Uh, what the th thoughts are going through the mind. Okay. Uh, some of what you said to me, it's an idea about ego strength and all that. But the fact that, I, I have a way, a simpler way. There's a car here, many of you have heard me say this over and over because I'm so impressed by it. There's a car with a bumper sticker that, uh, on that street, if you go home that way, and it says, uh, don't believe everything you think. Okay. I think that, like, and I felt, if that person really practiced that, not just uh, felt good about having that thought, and then agreeing with it and getting teary-eyed and then sharing it with other people, uh, but really, as thoughts come through the mind, no matter what they are, see that they're just thoughts. In Buddhist, then you can add Buddhist jargon. It's empty of, you know, it's empty in that when you look at a thought, it has no power at all. It's like a poor, homeless creature. It comes out of nowhere, goes back to nowhere. If you identify with it, appropriate it, okay, you give it tremendous power over you. It's all a one, one per, there's a, um, 
uh, it's something like this. There's an ancient uh, Chinese teaching story where the, be the greatest dragon painter in, in ancient China, he was improving all the time. He, he could really paint dragons, which you know, are kind of a mythical animal at, uh, in ancient times. And he got really good. And he did his masterpiece in, in his studio, and then he went home. And he came back in the morning, and he ran out screaming with terror that a real dragon was there. Uh, all it was was his best job. He had, he had created such a good dragon that he believed in it as being a real dragon. So, good. You can go home now. <laughs> Everyone else, you got more, more practices called for. You're done, free, you don't have to waste any time or money here. Okay, do you see what I'm getting at? Okay, and yet there's a time where thought is useful. So some of the skill is when is thinking useful and when isn't it? Uh, but let's just take ordinary meditation practice. Most people at some point have some difficulty, let's just stay with the breath as was in. Uh, there's some sittings where you can't even find the nostrils, let alone the breath. Okay? And you get discouraged and there's a thought, this is not for you, you know. This is, everyone else in the hall is doing well, they're calm, they're, uh, you're, this is impossible. Why are you wasting your time? Your mind is entirely too wild. You started too late, you're too old, you're too, you know, endless. Okay, if you believe in those thoughts, if you believe impossible, then you may, then you might as well go home because you've undermined yourself. But if you see it as thoughts, they're just thoughts. In other words, don't make difficult and don't make easy. Don't make anything. Just see it as blah, 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 blah. It's like skywriting. Eat at Joe's restaurant. I don't, I don't know. They don't have sky. Gorillic milk, you know, which is wah, 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 uh, And then if you appropriate it, which is a very good word, you identify with it, you, put it, you give it the energy, it's just a thought. But once you give it that energy, you, you have created a dragon that frightens you out of your own studio. You made up the whole thing. So we're learning how to liberate ourselves from our own mind. It's kind of hilarious when you, when you look at it that way. Do you see what I'm getting at? So, and I think Mark probably does get it. That, yeah, sounds good. Anyone else, please? Now, how do you distinguish um, with emotions? What about emotions? Yes, but this isn't about saying. It's about, let's say, what we, emotions is just a word, right? Uh, give me an emotion that is r very real to you. Okay, let's just stay with that. That's a big one for all of us. Okay, but it's not F-E-A-R. That's just a word, okay? But let's say you have to use it to communicate so we can all get a rough sense of what you're talking about. And then let's say F-E-A-R turns up. Okay, that's an actual occurrence in nature, in you. You can feel it in the body, you can feel the feel, fear move through the body, you can fear it affect the pulse, the heart, the breathing, and maybe subtle, more subtle mind stuff, that's what you'd be aware of. Now, is that, now, uh, it used to be, this is an overgeneralization, and um, I had a woman teacher named Vimla Takar from India, and she found this to be true, especially of highly educated Western women. No, no, this is Indian women. Okay, here, here's the point. Often women had a harder time being aware of emotion. Men had a harder time being aware of thinking because women were more emotional. 
and men were more conceptual. But that's starting to change as women uh, get more education and men are told it's okay to cry, big boys can cry, you know, that whole. So we're all learning, uh, opening up to where we've been shut down to some degree. Or, but uh, whatever it is, each individual, uh, what we call an emotion, fear, is energy. Where's the energy guy? Oh yeah, over there. It's en oh, you're somewhere else. Hello, coming in for a, oh, you are here. Okay. Okay, you looked very deeply in some, were you somewhere else? Oh, guy, apologize. Okay. So uh, that's an occurrence. That, so that, let's say in this method, when awareness gets very, very steady, and the, let's say fear comes up, to begin with, no one wants to observe fear. That's what I meant. And the, it would be, let's get out of here. Because uh, then, but then you get encouraged to, well, that's f first noble truth, that's suffering. When we're afraid, typically we are suffering. Okay? Because what we're attached to is not having the fear. We don't want to feel that. And so what we might look at is then how the strength of how much we don't want to look at it. It's not that you rub your face in the fear. But little by little, like anything else, you can learn to uh, approach fear face to face, get to know it, and you realize it's a play of energy, and it arises, it passes away like the, the dragon, and then it's gone, and you see it's an impermanent, empty phenomenon. Empty means it's not that substantial. But when there's no wisdom, it's very powerful, and we it's as if it's a mountain, and it's going to be there forever. And then it has its effect. With wisdom, we see it isn't a mountain. It isn't going to be there forever. It isn't as solid as we've made it into. Do you see what I'm getting at? And so it's the same practice. For, uh, that would appear in, the, uh, in this sutra, in the third a set of contemplations, where you'd, if emotions are there, that's what you're aware of. If thoughts are there, that's what you're aware of. Often there's an interplay. Thoughts beget emotions. Emotions beget thoughts, affect the body. It's all one being. Does that make sense no, to you? No, no. That's a relief, but that's not getting to the root of the problem. For example, uh, years ago that we used to, with anger, you know, a pound, I went on one retreat, uh, you know, these were new age stuff, with a, I remember with a baseball bat, pounding a mattress, you sound like it was my so army sergeant, Sergeant Spade. He was a terrific anti-Semite, he made my life miserable for six months. I was cursing it. And this other person, Big Sir, California, let him have it, kill that sergeant. You son of a bitch, sergeant's a page. You know, it felt better. But I hadn't dealt with the root of anger. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.